this morning, if I asked a room full of Christians, or maybe even just this room here, if I were to ask them, why do you follow Jesus? Or I might put it this way, why do you year after year remain faithful to him? I wonder what I would hear. I mean, what would you say? How does one remain faithful? How does one walk in endurance for 20, 30, or even 50 years in following God and having faith in Jesus, becoming more and more dependent upon the Spirit. If you think about endurance, when it comes to endurance, really in anything, we all would agree it has to be something substantial <laughs> to keep you going. Because when the hardest of hardest days arrive, what is going to carry you through? Well, according to the preacher of Hebrews, he believes because he's been tasked with the job of building in these followers of Christ, faithfulness, confidence, endurance. So here's how he answers the question. Here's how someone remains faithful 20, 30, 50 years down the road. It is confidence in the person and work of Christ. And this confidence, well, it feeds endurance. You see, this confidence, as we've been learning, is an unshakable surety in God's existence. That he indeed is actually God. He is what he said he was. There is an unshakableness, a confidence in the person and work of Christ that apparently feeds endurance. The preacher and this task of trying to gain greater confidence in Jesus so that they'll endure, he also believes that telling them the truth about what it looks like to not endure, telling them the truth about unfaithfulness, he seems to believe that this is also a way, or maybe we could say this also fuels the long walk of obedience. Warnings seem in the book of Hebrews to serve this point. The preacher seems to use these realities to bring about greater motivation because these warnings bring clarity on what is at stake. In any given moment when you're making decisions and things are hard, are we not asking well, what's at stake? Don't you just love the scriptures, the willingness to talk freely and truthfully about our lives? Well, here in our text today, we're going to see a lot of the same approach that the preacher has been taking, that the preacher has been doing all the way up to this point, the same approach to, to bolster endurance. Those first several chapters breeding confidence in the person and work of Christ by the end of those few chapters, it's hard for us to not just say yes and amen. <laughs> He's argued a very clear, very clear understanding of Christ. And now these last few chapters are moving towards endurance. But he uses the same 
approach he's been using. So let's dive into Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read just the first section, 12 to 17. Pause there for a moment, and then we'll dive back in. So Hebrews 12, we looked at, we started at last week, but we stopped at verse 12. And so we're going to pick up there and read to 17. Therefore, let your drooping hands and are lift up, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here, the preacher wraps up this previous encouragement that we looked at last week. You can go back and listen to that if you want. But here he's kind of wrapping up that encouragement. This encouragement was based upon all that God is and has done, you guessed it, in the person and work of Christ. He makes here a very strong application of all of these realities to their current situation. Here's what he's saying. No matter how hard it gets, Christ has secured for us a faith that is sure. In your weak and tired moments, let the realities of Christ's person and his work, let it, let it pick you up, your drooping hands tired from all the work. Lift them again in strength. Not only just in your strength, but in the strength of Christ who endured, as we saw last week. Who endured so that you can also endure. Pick up those tired hands. Pick up your dejected soul and be strengthened, brothers and sisters. Those weak knees that want to give out and give up, be strengthened. You see, the imagery is tiredness. The imagery is a worn outness. It's the sense of feeling completely dejected, wanting to stop. I am done. A feeling, a sense of just complete and utter hopelessness. Have you ever felt that way? Here the preacher says, hey, brothers and sisters, <laughs> this is not the Christian's reality. We are hope-filled people because Christ endured and won the victory. Not to um, overlook our troubles. They are indeed real. 
but we have greater realities at play. So therefore, strengthen those weak knees. You see, this encouragement, as he wraps up what he's just looked at, the beginning of, of chapter 12 is wonderful. Another exposition of all that Christ has done, a looking at the witnesses, looking at faith on display. And he says, hey, you tired, dejected, wanting to give up, don't. Don't. Christ's strength is your strength. And so this encouragement as a nice little summary, as a nice little uh, um encouraging way to move into some more intense things. Good compliment sandwich here. Giving us some things to chew on. Well, this encouragement kind of slowly leads into, you guessed it, another warning. See, the preacher of Hebrews has consistently used this pattern of exposition. What is that? Explaining rich theological thoughts about Christ. Not only about Christ, but about the realities, what we have in him, all that he has done. But he also moves from these expositions into exhortations. And I'll admit, these exhortations absolutely range in intensity. They can be encouraging. They can be more intense of, hey, wake up. But all of these exhortations are designed and used to gain greater confidence in Christ that will build greater endurance. You see, this pattern has been used, so we've come to expect it here. It's not out of the ordinary. It's not odd because this is how he has functioned. The pattern, as I said, has been used to build confidence in the person and work of Christ because there is absolutely no comparison to him. And now... This confidence is, or this pattern rather, is being used to, to build endurance. You see, because I just want to be clear, that's the point of this book. Be confident in Christ. And because of that confidence, you can endure. So he moves from encouragement into an exhortation. So this exhortation is to be strengthened. And in that strength, he said, we can pick up our hands, we can straighten our knees, but there are some things that we can do. Here he says, strive for peace and holiness. And he also says, look after each other. As we pick up our hands and we gain strength, we are to strive for peace and holiness. We cannot deny the fact that we live in community. A local gathering is only as strong as the people are unified and pure. The Bible speaks often about our life together, especially when it comes to endurance. We apparently need each other. Strive for peace and pursue holiness. Because as the text says, because without holiness, it's impossible to see God. And you just got to know that the preacher is taking this as just a, a quick reminder of who God is. Oh, he's holy. He requires holiness. And the preacher has went to great lengths to explain 
how one becomes holy. He has laid out for them and for us over the last several months that it's through a comprehensive work of Christ that makes us holy. And apparently that is able to help us to live together at peace. You see, a local gathering is a peculiar people, isn't it? I mean, from my vantage point, we're quite a hodgepodge group of folks in here. But yet through the person and work of Christ in our lives, there's a sense that we lean in to each other, that we're willing to go so far in our relationships that we'll actually work at difficulty. It's an oddity when you look around us. And yet it is the local gathering that has always put forward to say, how are you going to endure? It's going to be in the context of other brothers and sisters. So strive at peace. We need each other. I don't think I have to tell you, but unrest will be a part of our daily lives. <laughs> Anyone feeling unsettled? Anyone walk in the door with some unsureties today? Unrest is just this normal flow, right? I've often heard that change is the only constant. <laughs> Unrest will be a part of our daily lives in this world. So when it comes to our church family, let's be at peace. I'll admit, a lot easier said than done. But yet, an outflow of the work of Christ in our lives is the ability to strive at peace. Isn't that a strange push when it comes for endurance? Isn't that a strange thing to highlight when it comes to endurance? He says one of our greatest efforts that we pick up our hands, get the strength of Christ that we should be working on because of the person and work of Christ is be at peace. It's not so strange when we see it lead to the next part. You see, it's this peace between one another that allows us to encourage, to strengthen, and as he so clearly says, look after each other. It's in this context of this striving for peace for one another that allows us, affords the opportunity to look after each other. You don't believe me? Here's what the text says. Here's how it put. Here's how it puts it. No, I don't know if that's right. Here's how it puts it. There we go. Here's how it says, look after each other. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no, quotations, root of bitterness, springs up and causes trouble. And by it, by what? The root of bitterness in quotations, meaning that hmm, maybe this phrase has shown up somewhere. Maybe this means something. Because by it, many become defiled. You see, apparently, when it comes to endurance 20, 30, 50 years down the road, as we gain strength from Christ, looking to him primarily, as we gain this strength, you know what we are to do? We are to pour that strength out upon one another. Hey. I don't know about you, but that's That's wild. That's deeply encouraging to think that the strength that we gain from Christ now gets poured out onto one another. What specifically? Looking after one another's faith. 
looking after one another's love and affection for Christ. The preacher reaches back to the Old Testament. I know, surprise. But he reaches back into the Old Testament to show how much of a necessity that this is. To show how much of a responsibility, brothers and sisters, this is for us. It's not a mere suggestion to him. It is our responsibility as the Lord strengthens us. We pour that strength out onto one another. But not surprisingly, we've seen the preacher do this well. He reads in the Old Testament. You guessed it, root of bitterness. It's an Old Testament phrase. It's going back to Deuteronomy 29, 18, where the people of God rejected God. Don't, don't let a root of bitterness come because the result is not good. And, and as if that's not sufficient enough, he, he kind of just jumped back to the Old Testament. He's like, hey, Old Testament, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to go back to the Old Testament. He uses Esau as an example. Probably a familiar story to them because apparently they're well-versed in their Old Testament texts or what we would call the Old Testament texts. They probably didn't call it Old Testament at that time. But they're very familiar with the story of Esau, and probably you are too, right? He references the giving away of the birthright. Like, well, what's the big deal of that? In essence, what that act shows is that he is giving up his faith in God. He's rejecting all of God's promises, saying, yeah, it's not worth it. Esau is very clear of what has been uh, done before him and what is supposed to be done after him. Promises of God are clear. It has been laid forward, and he just, nah, I'm good. That's what the act of giving away the birthright is saying. In essence, he's just giving up on faith in God. He's rejecting all of God. Why? Because he's hungry. He, he's overcome with hunger. I'll admit, being overcome with hunger, well, that's not very fun. But see, the moment of distress causes him to do something. The moment of weakness, the moment where the knees are a little wobbly, in the tiredness, in the hunger, he loses all faith in God and he rejects God. These are wonderful, strong examples for us. Because I suspect there are weak moments, tiredness, hunger, where you're just like, I'm done. The preacher says, there's no reason to be done. Christ is who he said he is. But he brings these examples as warnings for all of us to look after each other. Why are we to do that? So that these things don't occur. That So no root of bitterness begins to spring up. The moment we sniff it out or smell it or, or begin to observe it in someone's life, we go. Because bitterness, according to the text, can be contagious. So look after each other. I'm not here to prove to you that you're not going to have those moments. You already know you will have them. Long-term illnesses, aging, loss of family members, jobs, income. All of it makes our knees weak sometimes. All of it makes our hands tired, and we might come to a place of bitterness towards God. Here are two examples of complete rejection. It's not worth it. I won't follow God. 
And here we know that these examples are very helpful because the end results are clear. You see, the preacher isn't willing to just kind of haphazardly talk about this. He is clear. We know the fate of Esau. It's not good. Rejection of God does not result in a joyous, wonderful life. It is amazing to me how much falls to each of us in helping each other. We're not just some country club, but we are a body of believers that believe something, that are confident and sure of the things of God and Christ. But this confidence gives us strength, and this strength causes us to be committed to one another, to look after each other. Can I just say, what a profound moment every Sunday truly is. So I grew up in a world in the deep south where you just went to church. It's just what you did. It's just socially you just go because grandma's going to be calling you later. You, you just, you went to church, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I don't know that I fully understand just how profound of a moment in my week sitting with brothers and sisters committed, confident in Christ, how significant that moment was. Brothers and sisters, we don't just um, plan a service just to fill time. We do it as an act of faith, trusting that as we gather, the Lord will use it. And as we gain strength, we are praying and desiring that we will pour that out to each other. What a profound moment this moment is. Well, let's continue. The encouragement, or should I say, exhortation grows. Let's look at verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness, and gloom and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. He's saying you, you didn't come to that. And if you're thinking about it, yes, there's an Old Testament reference. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, but you, or I like to say, but y'all have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. Don't you love, just go ahead and explain it to me. 
it the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order, this is a good thing, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And the glorious conclusion, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God, for our God is a consuming fire. Here the preacher continues with the warning, but I'll admit the tone, it takes a bit of a knock up, doesn't it? He encourages them that you're in a body of believers, leverage that. Now the preacher continues the encouragement. And the way that he does this encouragement, he takes the entire section and he has Exodus 19 in the background where Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai. Remember that story? You see, that meeting, it includes fear and trembling because God's holiness was on display. It was evident. It was clear at Mount Sinai. God's holiness was so clear. The quote of Moses that the preacher uses, it also recalls that moment, but it also dips into Deuteronomy 9, where the people of God had rejected God and worshipped golden calves. Oh, there's a lot looming in the background. You see another reference that when it got tough, when tiredness, weak knees fell upon them, they rejected God for lesser gods. But these stories put on display, and he intends for them to recall, smell the smell, see the scene. It also recalls God is holy. God responded to these moments. Verse 18 to 21, it reminds them of God's holiness. Remember Mount Sinai? Remember that scene? Remember when entireness people rejected? It reminds those reading this letter, it reminds them of who God is. And this makes sense. Isn't it, it is imperative in any exhortation to a group of people to be faithful to God. It is imperative in that exhortation to remind us of who God is. Because to not be faithful, to become unholy, the preacher wants to tell them the truth. It's not good. To be unfaithful, to become unholy, well, God is a consuming fire. Not only can we remain faithful, we should and rejoice in that, but he's also being clear. Do you understand who God is? There is a lot at stake. But there's good news. You see, verse 22 kind of turns a pivotal corner. Here's what it says. But you, y'all, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering. You see here the preacher has ar argued so much about Christ, and here there's an implication that's being made. The God of Mount Sinai is still the God of Mount Sinai, and he is holy. And the implication here is that though God is holy, do you remember that we have now come to Mount Zion? We have now come there where there is unceasing 
rejoicing. I think they're understanding how they got there through Christ. But isn't the scene incredible? Everyone's involved. Everyone is worshiping God, taking the drooping hands, rejoicing and lifting them in worship of God because they are on Mount Zion. You see, holiness has been achieved by the person and work of Christ, and Mount Zion is now there in our picture. You may be wondering, why all this rejoicing in verse 22? Because you know who's there on Mount Zion? <laughs> the text says in verse 24 that they have come to Mount Zion, and guess who's there? You've come to Jesus, <laughs> the mediator of a new covenant. And even in that phrase, see all the chapters before. And you come to Jesus, who's the mediator of a new covenant, where, where this new covenant was going to be a change from the inside out, because we all know it's very hard to change ourselves from the outside in. And so they, through the work of Christ, the new covenant had alluded there's going to be an inside out work. So you've come to that through him. He mediates that and his sprinkled blood. And his sprinkled blood, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, Old Testament, again. What's going on here? Mount Sinai reminds of God's holiness. Mount Zion reminds of God's grace and Christ's shed blood that speaks forgiveness rather than judgment. I want to make sure you heard that. Mount Sinai reminds of God's holiness. The scene is full of God's holiness, of God responding to unfaithfulness and unholiness. Mount Zion reminds of God's grace. Where's God's grace? It's in the shed blood of Jesus because that shed blood speaks a better word. What does it speak? Forgiveness rather than judgment. See, he's reminding them of their reality and reminding them of who God is. He's also reminding them of what God has done. See, that's their reality. Their current situation is God's grace, forgiveness that is in Christ. So his response is, do not reject him. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Here's the lesser to greater argument again. If those who rejected God in Moses' day, if they did not escape, how much more do you think you will escape? You see, the warning continues to ramp up. All cannot escape. 26 and 27 says this. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, and it has a purpose. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You see, God will shake the things that are shakable. But this is good for you and I. He shakes those things to reveal what is unshakable. Here the warning gets ramped up again. No one will escape God. You know who God is? In a consuming fire. God will reveal what is solid, what is unshakable. So what is our response to who God is? 
28 and 29 make it clear. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's being laid plain here is that no one escapes God. And everyone will see plainly when God shakes the earth, all will see what stands and what falls. Here the text says, what falls are man-made things and belief. What cannot be shaken, well, that's God and his work. So what do we do? Well, it's not to reject faith and lose hope. Oh no, according to the preacher here, it's to be grateful that God's kingdom cannot be shaken. You see, the world can crumble around us, but God is not shaken. His work in Christ cannot be shaken. And the kingdom we receive certainly is not shaken. This morning, I believe the preacher is screaming loudly, remember who God is and what he is building through Jesus Christ. You see, the aim of us today, the aim of this text is to build endurance based upon the confidence we have in Christ. You see, that's the aim, and he is thoroughly unpacked in such an eloquent way of how we endure. But this morning, he is putting God forward and said, you better remember him. But you also need to be mindful of what he's building through Christ. You see, in our weakest moments, God is still God which means his strength is still there. You see, our strength comes and it goes. His remains same. Pick up your drooping hands of dejection and continue to live the life of faith. Strengthen your wobbly knees and continue to stand firm in the promises of God. Remember who God is. In our weakest moment, God is still God. Nothing changes. And since God is still God, the preacher sees fit to say, in remembering all that he has done for us and that it remains the same, he also says, you must remember if God is still God, this means he's also holy. You see, our weakest moments might cause us to take shortcuts, might cause us to compromise might cause us to drop a little trust and develop the do-it-myself mentality because God is not near. Remember the examples. Remember Esau who went the easier route. Remember the people of God who worshiped the golden calves when it was hard. God did indeed respond. The preacher wants us to know his holiness also remains. But Christ sacrificed is still sufficient. You have come to Mount Zion and sit underneath the shed blood of Jesus. We have come to Mount Zion and we join the chorus of angels, the brothers and sisters, and we rejoice in gratitude because we know who we serve. And we are sure and certain of what he is building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, they got shook. We get shook. 
feel like this is something that we should just say, man, I got shook today. I don't know. We we get we get shook and it reminds us, you know what this this is so good for us. You know why it's good? Because it reminds us of what is unshakable. God's kingdom, brothers and sisters, those visiting with us, what God is doing, you need to hear this morning, is unshakable. Reject it all you want. Ignore it all you want. But his kingdom is unshakable. What's amazing about when you use the phrase kingdom, it means both the people and the promises of eternity. None of those go away. Those who live under the rule and reign of God need not worry when the rule and reign of this world is shook to its core. God remains and his work remains. Though society decays and is shook to its core, God remains. Though yesterday's surety become today's uncertainty, God remains the same. So what he does in making us a people and what he has for his people is not shaken. Brothers and sisters, remember who God is. God is a consuming fire. But God in his grace has provided the means by which we can stand firm today. What God is doing cannot be taken. If you're visiting with us and you wonder about this Christ and the unshakableness that we sense in him, grab someone. Brothers and sisters, if you've walked with the Lord for a long time, keep walking. Be confident in Christ and let that confidence breed endurance. Let's pray. Father God, I pray in these few short moments together that you've taken your word, the, the incredible truthfulness of your word, and you've taken it to convict us if needed. Father, if our confidence wanes, if our faith feels weak, we pray that if we looked at this text, that you would bolster a greater confidence in Christ, and that would move to long-term endurance. Father, you remain the same, which means you are holy and will always be holy. To reject you is not worth it. Though times are hard and all is difficult, the alternative of complete rejection of you is worse, is terrifying, because you are a holy God. But out at Mount Zion, there sits Christ, that through his shed blood, we experience forgiveness. That, Father, whatever the world throws at us, it doesn't matter, because you have received us. So, Father, in these moments, I pray, and maybe in the week, our weeks to come, this text would help us to endure. Thank you for all you have done for us. It is in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.